Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University, and today I'm going to be interviewing Marissa Harris about her paper, Using Behavioral Skills Training with Video Feedback to Prevent Risk of Injury in Youth Female Soccer Athletes. Marissa is originally from Memphis, Tennessee, and received undergraduate and graduate degrees from Mississippi State University and kinesiology and health promotion before obtaining her doctorate in education from the University of Memphis. Because of her lifelong passion for sports, Marissa chose to focus on applications of behavior analysis to sports in her dissertation, which ultimately led to the paper we're talking about today. I think Marissa's research shows a really interesting application of behavior analysis and I'm excited to share the interview with you. So without further ado, here is my interview with Marissa Harris. Hello, Marissa, and welcome to the Behavior Analysis and Practice podcast. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to hear about your paper, Using Behavioral Skills Training with Video Feedback to Prevent Risk of Injury in Youth female soccer athletes. Really, really interesting topic. I've got so many questions. I, I was really fascinated reading this paper. Well, thank you. I'm yeah. glad that it evoked that feeling. <laughs> um, I don't know if that was my my initial goal outside of just trying to finish a dissertation, but the fact that it's very, very interesting to you, that is great to know. Yeah, it's just some of the some of the information you describe in the paper related to ACL tearing, I had just never thought of. And so I'm excited to jump into that. Before we do, I'd love to hear just a little bit about who you are and your relation to behavior analysis and this type of research. Um, so my name is Marissa Harris. I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I now live in Jacksonville, Florida. I work as a special education um program coordinator so I go in service the special education population um, my background is in both clinical exercise physiology and I have a master's in health promotions and then my education portion comes in with my doctorate instead I am very I have always loved sports from the time I was little until even now I coach track and field um and in throughout middle school and high school, I played basketball, I played soccer, I ran track, I ran cross country. Um, so um, my brothers and sisters are heavy into sports. My friends are heavy into sports. So sports have always, has always been like a huge part of my life. Um, and then, of course, came the education piece and ABA was something I just kind of stumbled on so applied behavior analysis was something I just kind of stumbled into really really just kind of stumbled into <laughs> I was really going back to school 
to get a second master's in teaching so that I could teach and coach. Hmm. Okay. Well, you've already answered one of my first questions that I had when reading it, which was whoever wrote this has to be an athlete or has to be involved <laughs> with sports to some capacity. And I talked about it in the, the sort of the pre-intro, but this paper's focused on preventing uh, ultimately ACL tears in, in youth soccer athletes. And so can you tell us a little bit about the issues related to ACL tearing, the, so, like some of the prevalence, some of the problems that that causes? So, um, like I said, being in sports, uh, I myself, I've never experienced the ACL tear. Thank God. Knock on wood, um, right? Yes. Knock on wood. <laughs> I probably won't experience any now because I'm not about to try and do anything that's going to make me any increase my risk of tearing uh, ACL. But um, so just the and then when I went to um, Mississippi State where I went into kinesiology I just became more aware of the prevalence of ACL tears and the increased risk that females have over males Um, Mm. and a lot of it from what I was learning was due to how our pelvics um, are shaped Um, of course that's more so for the childbearing purposes Um, and then if if you know about the ACL tear you know that it takes a while to recover from. Right. And you said in your introduction, I believe you said women are two to three times more likely than men, their, their male counterparts. So I'm mm-hmm. assuming similar sports to, to tear their ACLs, which to me was one of the most <laughs> sort of surprising features of this. And it sounds like you're saying that's largely due to just the, the physiology of, of a woman. The anatomy. So anatomy. Uh, the anatomical piece has a lot to do with um, the increased risk of ACL tears. Um, but then once you get past that, you also have to look at the technical piece and things of that nature that, okay, if anatomically that's not an issue, then if we're not mechanically sound, then, you know, that increases the risk too, because we're already at a predisposed increase and then now if we don't come back with proper form proper technique mm. things that are landing appropriately all of that you know it shoots out the roof on if and when a, a female athlete will experience an ACL tear right and in your paper you specify that much of this has to be due to, to form because you said that 70 percent of ACL injuries are actually non-contact injuries. Yep. So you do it without the the presence of anybody else. You, come, <laughs> you turn your leg wrong. You come down on your foot wrong. You know, all of those things um, are those non-contact pieces. So there's no external contact, no trauma to that knee, that knee area, that knee joint that actually causes this tear. Is the fact of um, you know, you're even in basketball, you're jumping up to make a layup and you come down wrong. Or in soccer, soccer has a lot of cuts to it. Mm. And, and the movement in general, a lot of lateral movement, a lot of front to back also, but a lateral going across the field. And all of that changes our momentum, how much force we're putting on our feet and our knees and things of that nature. Yikes. And you mentioned earlier the length of time it's required really to to recover from something like an ACL tear. What are some of the primary 
sort of costs associated with that? If, if let's say one of the, someone in the age range of your participants, which was, I, I believe, like teen, young teenage mm-hmm. uh, females, that if they were to tear their ACL, what, what are the implications of something like that? So, of course, none of us are Adrian Peters and have his <laughs> genetics and things like that because, you know, he came back, like, quickly. But right. genetically, that's just, he was able to do that. So, for a younger kid in with the ACL tear, especially if it's one pretty severe, um, my first initial thought is the mental cause. Mm. How, you know, how that trauma plays into them even wanting to come back into that sport, which, right. you know, if they were, if they were a very good athlete in the beginning, that may have been something that they were looking forward to do in middle school and high school and college and get their, you know, college paid for with it already. So then now with this traumatic event, or it can be very traumatic. Now that mental cost of that trauma now kind of deters them from what their future could have been and that's the mental piece when we get into financially for the parents that's another piece now if you have insurance it may look different but if you don't then you know it's surgically it has to be repaired most of the time surgically it has to be repaired so the cost financially with that and physically so after financially you know you go through the surgery things in the nature then you have to go to physical therapy and again, if you're looking at the access to things, um, some some people or athletes, young athletes, their parents are able to have the access to the better physical therapy, the, you know, things of that nature. Some athletes don't have that opportunity. So then, you, you know, if you don't have the opportunity, your physical therapy may not set you up to be the most successful or you may not have transportation to get to the physical therapy and you're not set up successfully to go back in and be as successful as you could be thus increasing your risk to hurt your ACL again wow and as you said I mean when you referenced Adrian Peterson not only is he you know one of the one of the best athletes in terms of of performance but also just physically one of the best athletes of all time and I'm sure, I mean, who knows what he actually paid uh, right. to, in terms of cost. And I'm sure he had the best surgeon in the world focus on these things. It's a little bit different than a, than a middle schooler or high school or even a college student, what, what they're going to have access to and the amount of cost it would go into fully recovering. And so these can be quite, quite problematic for mm-hmm. people who experience them potentially, you know, ending their, their, yeah. their sports career. Uh, at least uh, at the level that they were playing before. So looking at that, you identified a very important problem. You then specify, and these aren't even, it's not even contact that's causing these. These are specifically behaviors that people are engaging in related to, as you were saying, they're cutting, the way that they're running or moving. And so you looked at what movements are really needed to, to prevent Mm-hmm. some of these injuries and so what were what were the the strategies or movements that you were targeting in this study to prevent these ACL tears so with soccer in particular so it's it'll look a different it'll look a lot different across sports unless mm-hmm. some and some sports do share common movements that you know 
um, can you can transfer from one sport to the next if you learn a technique and things um, of that nature. Um, but when when we look at things as far as what movements are appropriate, what movements are not appropriate, um, just by me going through getting information, looking up articles, it's it's a lot about your um not only your lower body but your your balance of your body so mm. when a soccer player cuts if you've ever seen a soccer player cut it even just not soccer anybody you typically put a lot of pressure on your outside leg the leg that you're planning and cutting with um but what people fail to realize when you go in one direction typically your whole body moves in that direction instead of you cutting or you planning and cutting in your torso staying neutral mm. so your you know your torso over your hips your hips over your knees to help with that decrease um risk of tearing the acl because you don't want your whole body to shift to and put all that weight on that leg that you're cutting with you want to make sure you know everything is neutral your weight is spaced out and you know assisting in cutting and then moving in a different direction so going from one direction to the next direction as quickly as possible without any pause in um without any pause in speed or momentum or anything like that so mm. um when we were going through the steps um of, a, of the movement it was first looking at that kid and saying you know how, how are their body aligned? When they're cutting, what does the alignment of their body look like? Are they tilted all the way to the left? Are they tilted all the way to the right? Mm -hmm. Are they bending at the hips? I mean, bending at the waist instead of at the hips. So wh what does that alignment look like? And if we can look at their alignment and try and correct it to where a, a safer way to cut then that, that in itself um, could potentially pro provide a significant decrease in their chances of injuring uh, their ACL or having some type of ACL injury. Wow. So it's sort of about managing that weight distribution during these yes. movements. And so once you identified what type of movements you need to see during these drills, specifically related to soccer, mm -hmm. you looked at trying to find a, an effective training program to teach your participants to 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 do these movements and mm -hmm. so you ended up selecting behavioral skills training with video feedback can you tell us a little bit about behavioral skills training and why you selected it so behavioral skills training is just to kind of sum it up it's really a step-by-step -step if you're in the ab ABA were like a task analysis of skills that you want to be taught in which you can teach each, each skill separately. So then when they're all put together, it's the, it's the complete skill, it's that terminal skill that you want to see or that terminal behavior that you want to see at the end. So in, in looking into behavioral skills, I saw it had been done with a variety of things, um, car seat safety things, job interviewing, uh, graphing skills and graduate students, like all of these different things. And then I saw one about tackling skills and I'm like, okay, this is very sports related. Cause outside of that, I hadn't really seen anything 
that much um, until actually I got further into my dissertation and more came. Then I saw one about gymnastics and things of that nature. Mm. Um, I don't know if any of them at the time had the video feedback portion to it, but I thought it was very interesting because I'm a visual person myself. So to tell me something and then to show me something, especially when in my mind, I'm thinking I'm doing it correctly. Right. And then to actually see and for me to see that I was doing it incorrectly and to see what the correct thing looks like is a huge piece in me going back and performing that particular skill appropriately. Um, so, but behavior skills training has been around for a long time across various settings. And I felt that with kids, even with adults, teaching things in um, smaller teaching a bigger skill and smaller steps would be beneficial. And that's what behavior skills laid out for me. And I add the video modeling piece so that kids, so that the kids would be able to come and look at themselves and say, at this cone, this is the correct movement. Did you do the correct movement? No. What is your correct movement supposed to look like this? And then for them to have to go back and perform it, knowing that they themselves kind of self-corrected based on looking at that video. Gotcha. And I'll be interested to dive deeper into exactly how you applied to BST. But I guess before we do that, we should probably talk a little bit about your participants, your setting, and maybe mm -hmm. even the task that they were doing. So could mm -hmm. you tell us about your, your participants and where you were doing the study? So the study was done in Memphis, Tennessee with um, young ladies uh, they range from ages, I think, 11 to 13, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they, so they were already soccer players. So none of the individuals were like new to soccer or anything like that. They were, mm -hmm. they had all been playing soccer. They were actually um, recruited out of a soccer league. So they, they were aware of that. And I think if you, some people can say that, you know, well, how do you know they weren't already been trained on how to, you know, cut and all of this? And that's mm -hmm. where that pre pre-assessment piece came in because I can see them. I know what the cuts are supposed to look like. So regardless of if they were being trained, if they weren't retaining that information to appropriately do it, then BST became another method in teaching them how to retain that information. Um, so, yeah, so they were already soccer players. Um, of course, they had to be female. Um, they didn't they couldn't have had an ACL injury prior in anything like that. So the the young ladies that I had as participants, um, I think only one of them had a history of ACL tears in her family. And I think it was her aunt who was also a soccer player. Mm -hmm. um, so there was that they, they had no previous specialized training. Um, none of them were familiar with the drill that we were going through. So those were just some of the things that going in that we had to make sure that the participants, um, that criteria that they met. So we would just go out on a soccer field. It, it was a, a soccer field. Um, cones were set up in a zigzag formation. That's the um, drill that I use. So from one cone to the next in a diagonal um, pattern. And, um, and from there is where we kind of started um, the study. And those particular individuals, 
they, if I'm not mistaken, they play various um, roles on their soccer team. So like midfielder, um, defender, all those different types of things. So it wasn't just one position that we focused on either. Yeah, sort of a diversity of positions. Mm-hmm. In terms of getting connected to the soccer field you use or the, or the participants, what did that process look like? Did you, were you cold calling um, soccer so programs? Or? Luckily, the, the information that I sent out and um, my advisor helped me a lot because um, she actually, so we went to the same college. She's mm-hmm. older than me, but we went to the same college. She's my advisor at the University of Memphis, Dr. Laura Casey, that's her name. Um, and she was actually a collegiate soccer player. Oh, wow. Yes. And she coaches um, here in Memphis. And the crazy thing, I was a collegiate track runner. Um, So outside of us being an ABA and her being my advisor, we also just, I mean, organically, she was a college athlete. I was a college athlete and, you know, bam, here we are. So she was able to help me um, navigate through the process of just saying, hey, I'm doing a study for my dissertation. Is there any way that I could utilize your fields? What um, what I had to, the um, things that I needed to go through to secure the field, tell them, you know, when I was going to be there, tell them what it was about, making sure no liability was a part of it. Um, So all of that, she really helped me navigate through. So it was not terrible. And believe it or not, when it comes to um, people being very open, willing and helping in with dissertations, with grad students, um, it was by far one of the easier things I've done. People are very willing to provide assistance for grad students, you know, I say, hey, I'm doing, trying to finish my dissertation. Like, is there any way that you can help me? So, yeah, it was, it was not hard at all. But a lot of it, uh, I was able to get assistance with and help get navigate through that process with my academic advisor. Nice. Now, you were, uh, you said, collegiate athlete in, in track and field. Was there any particular reason you decided to go with soccer as opposed to track and field? Because I imagine there's got to be ACL tears. Yeah. That. So um, track and field was my initial piece to it. Um, However, if you want for the, I I guess for the clarity piece, because soccer is the world's most played sport, you kind of would get people who are more aware of like what soccer looks like, what the game looks like, how the cutting and maneuvers people would be more familiar with. Mm. Track is a growing sport. I love it. It's my baby. But I think as it relates to, um, as it relates to people outside of the track world, I don't know how interested they would be to look at a piece when you have to know a little in depth, things about track to understand like what a certain movement looked like so if you're not a long jumper have never seen long jump done you really don't understand what those movements and behaviors look like in teaching a long jumper how to perfect a skill or decrease some type of injury um so soccer it wasn't the easier one and I would um, and my plan is moving forward is to kind of implement it. And with my coaching, I'm able to implement BST with my kids just because mm-hmm. I know they know we know track, all of those different types of things. But soccer is a more world known sport. Right. And it and it, it makes 
the readers kind of it makes it easier for them to read and kind of maybe understand what that actual what that looks like and so. maybe maybe slightly more on the social importance level if if soccer is the most played sport then probably i mean i don't know this i'm, I'm speculating that there's probably more acl tears related to soccer than than track and field just in terms of of numbers as it, it, yeah so I mean, track is a growing sport, but again, it's the soccer is the world's most played sport. Right. So, it, you know, when you're looking at things to do and something you feel may have an impact, you know, you, for me, it's like, what would be the bigger impact? Mm, probably a sport most people are familiar with. That makes sense. I am almost as naive about soccer as anyone could be. So could you, could you walk me through what that zigzag drill look like. I know they're running to cones, but kind of what those steps are in that process. I know in your paper, you have a nice task analysis Mm -hmm. provided that sort of breaks that down, but could you walk myself and and the listeners through that? So if you think about a soccer player who has to, from a standing point, accelerate. So if they're running toward the ball, running to kick a ball, to stop a defender, anything like that with the ball, you go from really kind of a standing position to an accelerating position. So if we're doing that, say, let's just use, if our teammate has kicked us the ball and we have to go from a stop point to to accelerating, to again, stopping the ball and cutting across the field, to move, to move the ball and ourselves in a different direction. Mm. So we're going from one, one spot, no acceleration to accelerating, planning, cutting and going across the field. That in itself, if you think about it, you think about it in the form of stop, go, stop, go, which is kind of what the zigzag drill um, replicated. So even though it was in the form of cones, you accelerated from start to the cone, you plant it and you cut to the next cone. So you, you cut, you accelerate it again, and in which you have to, if you're going for a ball, you have to decelerate. Mm. So from cone to cone, it allowed you to accelerate decelerate plant all of those movements that you would have in your normal soccer game if that makes any sense yeah yeah i think so and when you're when you're watching the the athletes or the participants run these cones how exactly are you collecting data you've mentioned what you were collecting data on in terms of their their body positioning i don't know if you would call that posture or not but Mm -hmm. the position of their body while they're doing it how exactly are, are you collecting and coding that data? So what I looked at, um, of course, the acceleration and deceleration, all of that is important. So what was what we actually took data on was the deceleration portion to the plant and the cut portion. Mm-hmm. Um, the acceleration is important also. However, we felt that in a sense that planning, because research says that cutting maneuver um, also is a huge uh, risk factor if it's done inappropriate to an ACL tear. So we can 
get it in our minds or get in an athlete's mind when they are going to decelerate and cut, do the cutting maneuver. This is how our body should be positioned. Our, you know, our foot should be planted. Our, our torso should not be over our knee. Our knee should, our knee should not be over our toe. And we should not be, our entire body should not be leaning to one side. Gotcha. So that's basically the picture that was created in order for us to collect the data. So this is what, when you decelerate and plant and cut, this is the picture that's the correct picture. So when I'm looking at you and you don't do, and you, and you don't look like this picture, then that's the issue. And we were able to use um, a GoPro and then some software called Coach's Eye, which actually, once you imp import the video, you can use all of these little lines and things like that to see if their knee is over their toe, to see if their torso is over their knee. Wow. So you can use different types of lines and things like that to show you like the alignment of that individual at that point on that cone. So you can show them like, and again, I, I, I'm having a, I don't know enough about soccer to know what people's bodies should look like, but you can show them like, here's where your shoulder is and here's where it should be. And you yes. can literally have a line right in that picture yep. or video. And so you can create, I could create a line from their shoulder to their knee and say, is your shoulder in front of your knee or is it behind your knee? Wow. Is your shoulder supposed to be in front of your knee? No. Or is your knee supposed to be in front of your toe? No. And that line indicates it shows them exactly like your knees here, your toes here is over your toe. So that means that we're putting ourselves at increased, increased risk for some type of injury because our knee is above our toe, uh, is in front of our toe. And that in itself could, um, once we try to cut, that could create a problem for our alignment because now we're shifting our weight um, more than we should. So that that piece of software was very, very important. And it was it was very, very useful. I initially found the software through track and field again, mm -hmm. um, just because um, you have so many events, so many technical events in track and field that that visualization for athletes is needed. And it's very from my experience, it's been very helpful. So I bet is that is that a. Is that a app that you have to pay for? Or do, you, do you know the information about that? So you get, so you can get, as always, a piece of it free. <laughs> it's not going to come with all the bells and whistles, but you can get registered for it. It's an app. Um, you can download it um, through the app store. You can get a smaller piece for it free. But if you want the whole shebang, um, it, it, it does cost, but it's not very costly for the, for what it allows you to do. It's worth the money. So you can replay video, you can slow motion. You, I mean, just a ton of things that's nice. beneficial. And does it do the lines automatically? Or are you sort of as a coach or, or a person putting the lines in to show the athletes? So you can take, so it already have lines available and you can take the line and just put it where you need to put it to show them what it's supposed to be. So um, you're not like configuring your own lines. You're just pulling them out of there. And sometimes it, and as part of the app, you actually can draw lines and X's and say, hey, you were supposed to be here, but you were here. It, to me, it's very user-friendly. To some, it might may not so much, but um, it helped a lot with my track kids or athletes when, we're, when we were talking about 
leg angled and your your leg is supposed to be in a 90 degree angle and your drive phase and all of this other stuff so they were able to kind of see those things and I was like hey and I work with kids four to 18 mm. so they seem very responsive to it so I thought it would be um a very good thing to use for uh the participants in this study all right it seems like it'd be very descriptive and very really discreet as to did I do it correctly or not and if I didn't do it correctly how do I correct to that or what do I need to do to 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 deliver that skill or complete that skill more correctly and discretion was something big and and sometimes it can be something big because some kids some students athletes have issues with criticism um and for the portion of um sometimes if coaching some kids can take what you say to one kid and try to apply to what they do when it really has nothing to do with them. So that discretion piece was really cool. And you can kind of send kids their videos, their, the videos of themselves doing it and kind of have it marked up and things like that. That's awesome. So in terms of procedure, so we've talked about the participants. We're out at the soccer field. They're running these zigzag drills. You're videotaping it, you said, with a GoPro. Now, is that GoPro, like, in front of the cone? So, is that on them? Where, like, what are you so, filming? Or what's the angle there? So, the GoPro is at the end, was at the end of the zigzag drill. Okay. Um, so, I had a GoPro connected to an um, a iPad. And, not, and it was connected to the iPad and on my phone. So, I didn't, I didn't have to be right at the iPad. You could actually control the GoPro from your phone. Um, so it it was pretty cool. Um, so the GoPro was set up at the end of the zigzag drill. It was able to get get the entire cones, the, the majority of the field. So it was great quality. It was, it was very easy to use. Um, I'm actually very happy that I used the GoPro, um, cause it's really portable, really easy to set up. And because it was able to connect to an iPad and my phone, I didn't have to continually touch on an iPad and have to continually touch the GoPro. It was really, really, really cool. That's awesome. Now, in terms of the design, you used multiple baseline design. You, of course, collected baseline. So I'm assuming that means they ran through the cones. You're videotaping it. You're collecting data, but no feedback to them. No yep, information. Nothing. Now, the instruction was simply run the cones. You didn't give them the instruction on form nope. or any of that stuff. No, nope. no specific details on how I expected them to do it. Uh, hey, just I don't think I even called it a drill. You know, let me see you run from cone to cone to cone. Gotcha. And then for the BST phase, what did that look like? sort of from start to finish so like what did the instructions look like obviously you don't have to go into like the full script of what that would be mm-hmm. but a general description of what those steps so like. none of the participants saw one another mm-hmm. um so they didn't hear um during the bst phase they did not hear even during the baseline phase they didn't see each other and in bst they didn't hear any feedback that was previously given to another student and actually they came at completely separate times so um like one kid may have come at one and the other participant came at two so even on the soccer field even though they may not have heard me they weren't able to view see the the participant before them either so it was solely me and um the participant out there and um so i would 
do the instruction phase. Um, the, and you're just sort of describing what you expected to do run. This is how I want you to slow down. Here's where your body should be, that kind of information. Yes. Yeah, so it was, um, I, w- I gave them verbal instruction on how to perform each of the steps in the zigzag um, drill. Um, and then within those steps when they were when they would get pieces of those steps wrong once we um went back for feedback we would say we it was just a check it off did they do this right was this right wrong right wrong right wrong um and the fourth so it was four cones but we only utilized um three and the fourth one was just for them to finish out the drill without stopping at that third cone, gotcha. which would have kind of thrown things off. But it was because if they wouldn't have cut again, they would have just kind of ran through. So the fourth cone was just used as a, a finishing, finishing motion, um, basically. And the feedback piece. So once they once verbal instruction was given, they went through the drill. Feedback was given after every. Um, completed drill so you know I would they could look at the video and be provided feed, verbal feedback also and did you do modeling and rehearsal in between did you model the cone running so with the the verbal instructions was given um each piece was modeled so each step was modeled um and then once they were um, went through that modeling piece and they felt comfortable then we went through uh, the instruction was then for them to go through the entire drill and then once they completed the entire drill is when the feedback piece came gotcha and who was were you modeling the the, the performance or so the I had a young lady taking IOA with me um, and that's just part of uh, the research piece who was um, a collegiate soccer player in itself, in herself. So she was able to model. Okay, so prior to us modeling for the kids, we um, went through the task analysis ourselves to make sure we were on the same page of what things were supposed to look like, how it was supposed to be modeled. And she was able to do that. So we both knew what it was supposed to look like because in that same breath, she was going to be my backup IOA, um, which is in our observer agreement to see if we agreed and we saw the same thing. So um, we were able to utilize our partnership for not only the modeling piece, but her being a, a collegiate soccer player, if I was saying, yeah, this happened, and she was saying, no, it didn't happen, then it wasn't agreeance. And because her background and experience with soccer, um, she had a very good idea of what things were supposed to look like. So she was the modeling piece, um, as well as the IOA piece too. Nice. And so you went through the instruction, modeling, rehearsal, feedback. Now in terms of the feedback, so they would run the cones, you're videotaping them, and then you're showing them their performance via that, that app you referred to. Mm-hmm. Is that immediately after they finish or when is that exactly? So it was immediately after they finished. They, we viewed it for the steps that they did, right? It was like, that's great. 
you know, I provided verbal praise for those that they perform correctly and then correct the feedback on for the steps that the participant performed incorrectly. Um, and so with that being done, once once they were provided the feedback, they went back and did did it again, basically, to nice. see if that feedback assisted um, at all. And how many sort of sessions or, or trials going through the zigzags would they do per session or per day? Um, so it so it kind of depended on their accuracy. Um, they were I know within that within the session it was we it took about two minutes and sometimes even at most two minutes to perform. Um, that feedback section and for them to go back and do um perform it again um three training and probe sessions were done daily with the participants um and then because because i had a multiple baseline some of the participants stayed in baseline longer but they were probed and right. then once they once they were able to show a pattern then is when they went into the intervention phase and those that were already in the intervention phase would, would move along um with the after the three training and the probe sessions were conducted daily gotcha and you say so you did the baseline phase you did the bst phase and we'll talk about results in a moment but before we do you also did basically some follow-up probes. You did two generalization probes and a maintenance probe. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about those? So with the generalization probes, it, it was basically to probe their performance on the drill when the intervention was withdrawn and while they were being presented with distractors, which we use balls. Like when they were doing a zigzag drill, we would kick a ball to see if it distracted them from um, what they were supposed to be doing. So we were kicking at their feet and to kind of see if we could generalize the actual drill to a more game-like situation. Mm -hmm. um, because in a game-like situation, you will have, you know, you could be running down the field and you could have a ball kicked your way um, and you have to stop, cut, and do all those other things. So our, our assessment of generalization was done. It was probed just to see um, how that participant would fare with and without a distractor, which was a ball. Nice. And then you also did the maintenance probe. Yes, the maintenance probe was done three weeks later. And um, it was to see if what was taught um, – what had maintained through uh, over those three weeks and um in the maintenance phase they performed the zigzag drill um with no instructions being provided um uh, no bst and no feedback they were only given the direction for providing baseline that's it um and that was just to to gauge like whether the skill had maintained that same level of accuracy um, or reverted back to what they were doing prior to the intervention. Nice. And you used a multiple baseline design. 
um, and your graph is really beautifully constructed. I'm really sort of a, a geek when it comes to graphs, so I really enjoy looking at your graph. I think it's really well done. But can you walk us through the listeners who you know aren't potentially are potentially not looking immediately at the graph? Could you walk us through the results of this study? What did you see in each of these phases? So I saw that um, many the three young ladies that that we were working with. They were, um, they had pretty decent, um, they did pretty decent in baseline, um, really better than I thought they would have. But like I said, they soccer, they have a background in soccer. Um, but I don't know if it was them kind of feeling like, hey, like what's going on type of thing in baseline. But you did see, like, they were consistent consistently right consistently incorrect and then you know they would drop or some would increase so I couldn't not I couldn't implement the intervention until I had some type of consistency and then when I saw that consistency which was um for me it typically was one that either dropped or one that went back to what their original data point was and then from there I could implement it and once we implemented BST it was almost a uh instant increase in steps performed correctly um my first participant hers were more gradual but it seemed after a couple of times of instructions it kind of it, it may have clicked or her consistently going through it and seeing herself and utilizing that feedback she was able to go from a small jump to basically almost I mean, two two times at 100% accuracy where she was doing it appropriately. And me and um, the young lady who helped me with my IOA was saying, oh, we're seeing the same thing. All of it's correct. Um, and overall, what we saw was an increase in all of the um, individuals once BST was implemented. With generalization, um, the generalization piece, some of the participants held better at generalization than others. Um, if I'm not mistaken, one participant only dropped to her lowest for generalization that that she did of steps performed correctly when BST was uh, provided. And then for the maintenance piece, um, there initially um, for two of my participants, they dropped, but then it it gradually the steps they were able to perform the steps appropriately um and one of the participants she actually never dropped for her maintenance her steps the steps she was performing correctly was as high as they were at 100 percent at maintenance that they were with bst which was considerably higher than what she had at baseline so her retention piece for accuracy was amazing um the other two young ladies they dropped, but they did eventually after those three sessions. Well, during those three sessions, there's the steps that they were performing, they more of them were accurate. Nice. And so the data show the BSC video modeling seemed to, to help the participants improve in this skill. Um, and that, like you said, the, some of the maintenance data started off somewhat low, but we're on an increasing trend. Yeah. So what are the, what are the big implications for the study do you think in terms of of this procedure and addressing 
some of these skills related to pre- preventing ACL tears. I would say for these three young ladies, BST did show some type of effective method for teaching skills as it relates to soccer. So, or in this particular instance, teaching skills or behaviors or movements that we feel are beneficial to female athletes in reducing ACL injuries. For these three young ladies, they seem to utilize this method of teaching for it to be implemented, for them to be able to perform the steps correctly and for it to be maintained is accuracy over time. Um, And over time was just three weeks, but in our mind, we're hoping that if this is something done daily with these students, I mean, with these participants or athletes, when they're being coached, that that maintenance piece would last longer periods of time and with a consistent higher accuracy. Um, So I think it's very important just because not all athletes learn the same. We can't coach them the same. We have to find different ways for them to be successful, for them to decrease the risk of injury. And hopefully the article helps coaches or whoever see that, hey, this is a potentially effective method for teaching my athlete skills that they can maintain over a long period of time with the high amount of accuracy and we're just not going through our normal well I've been coaching this way for this long with this type of athlete and that's what I'm gonna continue to do because not all athletes um benefit from that and I think as a as coaches we have a responsibility to go out and seek those research-based things um, to help our athletes um, be the best athlete because we spend so much time with them and we can have such a huge impact and how they may interact or coach in the future. So not, not all athletes become these really famous people. Some of them are like myself. They go back and coach kids on how to be a better athlete or how to perform things better and to have that in your skill set or have that in your repertoire to pull out and say hey you know my coach used to do this with me and it seemed very effective let's see if it works for you nice and so you're feeling that coaches should be utilizing this technology it certainly looks promising in terms of research if, if people are interested in this topic what are some of the questions that you think are left unanswered as of right now that people should be potentially investigating uh, in in this line of research? Um, If I was to say research and ABA associated with um, sports, health, fitness, anything like that um, is exactly that. I would say, what, what are we not trying to apply ABA to? Because, and it's, And BST is a thing of its own, but essentially it goes kind of within that same realm of ABA. Um, Because as you see, all the the drill itself was just a task analysis broken down into steps. And it's, you know, um, traditionally ABA world is autism. That's traditionally, that's what it is. So, you know, as it relates to research, it's like, how can we pull from from that pull that ABA autism correlation and say no 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 ABA can be used to teach anybody things or you know that it could be teach teach them skills that they don't have not just children with autism like those are that's not the only group of, of 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 people that would benefit from research being done in other fields and other aspects outside of your traditional ABA world 
So um, for me, that was something huge that I always kind of, in my mind, I played with once I better understood the field of ABA. Like, I love, I'm a special education teacher. I, that's what I do right now. But how can, this has been very beneficial to this population of individuals. But these, these individuals are not the only people that would benefit from the principles and procedures of applied behavior analysis, such as BST, which anybody can learn if it's if it's implemented appropriately and that can help improve a skill teach a skill whatever that may look like absolutely your and your study is a perfect example of utilizing the science of behavior analysis with a broader population mm-hmm. than than we more frequently see uh, uh you know in today's aba world now for the for the studies within the sports or ACL prevention. Do you think people need to replicate this a little bit more? Maybe see it if it generalizes to like gameplay. And I don't even know if that would. I think that, that would, would work in terms excellent. of data collection. It'd be interesting. But do you, do you see the the research going that direction? Yes, I. I mean. I don't know if it's going that direction, but I would love to see it go that direction. Like you, it may be difficult to catch those things in gameplay, but I think gameplay real time is essentially where we want to to see those things occur. So to have research done in that area would be um, would be very very helpful to you know into actually saying okay, BST did translate from just. Um, um, just a research-based kind of in your own little study, this contrived setting to an actual real-time in-the-moment game-type situation. That's where you really, really kind of want to see. And I would love for somebody to take that and run with it. Say, hey, she started here in this little contrived setting with, you know, this setup for what, what gameplay may look like and the movements that may come with it. But hey, I'm about to do one where the, the, the athlete is actual real-time gameplay, you know, everything, it's a million things going on at one time. Nice. So anyone who's looking for a dissertation out there, you think this is a good topic, they should pursue it? Yes. <laughs> yes. I think it would be such, such a huge, huge, um, benefit if they're able to conduct a study that included real-time play skills translation and real-time play nice for people who are interested in this topic are there any recommendations you have for them things to check out read anything like that um i would definitely um look at the if you if you kind of want the background on stuff, I would look at the American Journal of Sports Medicine as it because it just has that information and those research based things around injuries and athletes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know within a, there's a Facebook group for health, sports and fitness um, surrounding ABA, um, which I think is very, very cool. Um, and those are just some of the things that I kind of utilize to touch on it, but I think most, most importantly, I think that um, Facebook group and I, it's the, um, it's the, not a club. You can actually get a membership. 
Oh, um, like a special interest group or something? It's a special interest group. Yes, I'm so sorry. I could not think of it. Special interest group for the health, fitness, and sports. And it's always um suggesting things on how it could how ABA could benefit the world of health sports and fitness. Uh, I really, really like that. Um if if you're interested, if it's not just soccer, just anything around um human behavior or behavior as it relates to health, sports and fitness. That sounds like a phenomenal resource. As is this paper, extremely interesting study. Marissa, thank you so much for, for the work you did conducting it, writing it, and then coming on the show today to discuss it. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you reaching out to me. Um, I thank you for your interest in it, because um, if, it, if you didn't have interest in it, we wouldn't be here today. So um, I, I'm just grateful that I was able to produce something that caught someone's eye. All right, thank you for listening. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent fat papers that you'd like us to review. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal. Thank you to ABAI, who publishes Behavior Analysis and Practice and supports this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producer, Elizabeth Narvaez, and my production assistants, Jesse Perrin and Taylor Rainhill. Thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.